Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 26th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, I've got uh, Vanessa Bailey from Damascus, Mark Anderson from the United States. And uh, well, we obviously had a short break uh, because we were in Scotland. We'll come on to that later on in the program. And uh, Vanessa sent me a message uh, earlier or over the weekend saying this was a perfect time to take time off, wasn't it? Uh, because uh, amazing events uh, since last Wednesday. So let's just uh, very briefly rush through, uh, run through uh, what happened. So beginning on Thursday then, uh, Mr. Progosian uh, from Wagner Group put out this uh, piece of video. Um, having yet another uh, attempted a, a go at the, the Russian uh, military establishment and Sergei Shoigu and uh, uh, Commander-in-Chief Valery Gerasimov in particular. Uh, but of course, we've seen these types of things before. So uh, although it was quite a strong comment, uh, nobody thought too much about it. Uh, but then on Friday, uh, they released another piece of video. Uh, this was it. And Vanessa, very briefly, uh, you know, the, the, where this was said to be an attack by the Russian military on the Wagner Group. Uh, and uh, there were said to be bodies everywhere, but there were no bodies apparently in the video clip itself. No, I mean, to put it mildly, this is a very inconclusive uh, clip. <laughs> yes, indeed it is. So then on, the, uh, on Saturday, then uh, we had uh, the tanks rolling into Rostov, apparently. Uh, Rostov's military assets are under our control, said Prigozhin, including the airfield. Uh, jets that are leaving for battle in Ukraine are leaving as scheduled. Uh, there are no issues as far as he was concerned. Medical planes taking off, no problems there. He was very comfortable, he thought. Uh, that was uh, 7.30 in the morning. 8 o'clock then Putin puts out a statement looking described as looking very stern. Uh, but this, this was uh, the statement that went out. Uh, but in the meantime, what did we have? We had uh, video footage coming out on Saturday of the uh, Wagner uh, material rolling into Rostov. But if you look in the background there, um, you can see people just getting on with their days as usual. So at this point, it didn't seem as far, at least as far as the local populations were concerned, it didn't seem that there was anything terribly unusual going on. Uh, but then there was other video appearing, uh, and I've just taken a still from this one, um, showing the tanks in the streets with the uh, Wagner troops uh, on the ground there with their guns and so on. But if you look on the left-hand side of that, um, people seem to be walking right up to these guys with, with no particular concern. So it's, it's all a bit of a strange picture uh, going on there. But in the meantime, uh, various media uh, comments, uh, well, this is from Ukrainian press, images of helicopter allegedly downed by Wagner Group shared on Russian social media. Uh, and the sources that they list here are Astra and Baza, and Russian telegram channels, they describe them as RT, uh, that what they describe a pro-Kremlin uh, Kremlin, uh, Russian uh, media outlet and so on. This is the Kiev Independent, Ukraine's Air Force. Wagner mercenaries downed six Russian army helicopters, one plane on June the 24th. Um, so uh, that was the mainstream media, at least from the Ukrainian side, pushing this out. I didn't see very much uh, from the Russian side on this at all. But this was uh, CNN, then uh, reported by El Russo. Uh, US expected a lot more bloodshed in Russia, official says. So the CNN, certainly pretty unhappy that the bloodshed didn't seem to be appearing. Uh, there were these reports of downed aircraft. Uh, there seems to be some inconclusive statements around that. In the meantime, then, uh, as time went on, uh, the question of what was going to happen because the coup, the coup as it was being described in the West, had clearly failed. What was going to happen to uh, Prozhin? But this is uh, Dmitry Peskov saying, uh, "You will ask me what will happen to uh, Prigozhin himself. Uh, a criminal case against him will be dropped," uh, said Dmitry Peskov. Uh, and then he went on to say, "If you're asking me what guarantees that Prigozhin can go to Belarus, uh, that's the word of the Russian president." So he was absolutely certain that. Uh, Prigozhin was going to be allowed to go to Belarus. And indeed, on Saturday, it appears that he did do that. Uh, the video footage came out. Uh, an agreement was done uh, with, uh, with the, uh, the uh, Belarusian government, apparently. And, uh, well, Peskov had this to say. An agreement was reached that PMC Wagner groups would return to their camps 
and places of deployment. Some of them, uh, if they wish to do so, can later in contracts with the Defence Ministry. Uh, it also applies to fighters who decided against taking part in this armed mutiny. Now, uh, the, Peskov was being quoted by TASS here, and it was them that uh, chose to put the term armed mutiny in single quotes, as we saw on screen there. Uh, but Peskov went on. He said, uh, this, the special military operation continues. Our fighters on the front line display heroism. They're deflecting the counteroffensive by Ukraine's armed forces extremely effectively, and the operation will continue. Because as this uh, was progressing over the last few days, uh, it was, uh, uh, the thought did occur to me, Vanessa, what is that? What is Russia doing while everybody's distracted with this? Everybody's looking at what's going on with this uh, apparent coup attempt. Uh, and the question is, uh, what's Russia going to do? And of course, they what they did was they absolutely brought more reinforcements onto the front lines and so on. So if we just bring this on screen, this is Oruso again. Uh, this was their comments on it. Uh, so they're talking about the continued attacks by Ukraine, no breakthrough. Uh, their attacks blunted, stopped, uh, and their uh, equipment destroyed by Russian combined arms, mines, artillery, thermobaric rocket systems, uh, and so on. So the, the, clearly what was going on the front was absolutely under control. Uh, and then uh, in the meantime, this, these comments basically saying that the front stands, Ukraine is trying to restart a stalled counteroffensive. Uh, and uh, well, this is Brian's comments here. Uh, I would expect the 15 armed fi uh, fists are part of the final Ukrainian reserves. And these will be the normal limited number of armor and vehicles with a few hundred men each. The Russians are now practiced in destroying such attacks. Uh, and then today, uh, again, I suppose to demonstrate that uh, everything is business as usual. In fact, Sergei Shoigu uh, has uh, headed off to the front lines himself. Um, so this is a quite uh, incredible situation where all this was going on, Vanessa. But in the meantime, on the front, the Russians were not distracted in any way, shape or form. Yeah, and, and neither largely were civilians in Moscow. The first video you showed actually, Mike, is of the Chechen fighters arriving in Rostov um, to quell uh, the armed insurrection or the alleged armed insurrection. One, of course, has to ask where those heavily armed troops now are. And as you've already uh, alluded to, uh, did Russia use this event, and I'll go on to, to look into this in greater depth in, in my section, but did they use this event and NATO's distraction to effectively reinforce their front lines uh, without drawing attention to it? Because of, of course, as shown by the media in the West, everyone was focused on the potential of a regime change inside Russia effectively. Right, well, so, so let's move on to this. Now you want to begin with a little bit of video by uh, with uh, uh, yeah. Andrew. Uh, Andrei uh, Martinov, Martinov. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Andrei Martinov, who's a former, uh, I think it's Navy, uh, Russian Navy living in the US. But I just want to show this first little uh, section of his idea of what went on. Obviously, the fact uh, of the uh, Prigozhin having the connections with the uh, foreign uh so to speak services is now pretty well established actually and i will explain why and medvedev basically speaks about it about the international participation in that and that essentially it's uh, was as i spoke today with my dear friends in russia and we did even podcast sadly it's not downloadable on YouTube and it's in Russian anyway, we came to conclusion that it all was, and you can actually see there some hand here of uh, some organization from one small island which still considers itself to be important. The whole thing was most likely designed in such way as to uh, coincide with the breach of the first line of defense of Russian uh, uh, armed forces in uh, Ukraine during this counteroffensive. 
But if we all know what this counteroffensive turned into, it turned into a complete slaughter of the armed forces of Ukraine, their elite units, their strategic reserve, and of course the slaughter and basically burning of the mo everything the NATO equipped them with. And the idea was that once you breach the first line or maybe even second line of defense of Russian uh, armed forces, you throw in there what is called the uh, units for exploitation of the breach or the breakthrough. And then suddenly you have the mutiny from Wagner Group, which suddenly be becomes what? Huge military political uh, problem for Kremlin. And there you go. And suddenly you can talk, talk about that. Oh, some people will support them. And here comes the issue. If we accept this uh, theory, again, make no mistake, I'm not saying that this is necessarily true, but the probability of this is highly likely, if we'll uh, use the uh, famous Western media uh, lingo, then actually the, once you really started the uh, ticker, once you started the clock, which you can, cannot turn off, this is what happened. They just didn't expect that basically uh, armed forces of Ukraine will be slaughtered. And then suddenly there is no actually some kind of the military uh, factor which you can rely upon in order for you to start actually some kind of not just mutiny, but coup d'etat. Okay, so, so. Oh, sorry. So, um, sorry, I didn't realize I was back on then. Yeah. Um, so basically what, what I kind of want people to notice is the fact that uh, Martinov was smiling quite a lot during that uh, description of what he believes happened. And then I want to basically bring it together with this analysis from Larry Johnson. Um, this is at his own blog, Russia's Academy Award-winning performance for best coup, Prigozhin scores best actor. Um, let's have a look at who Larry Johnson is or used to be. So he's a former CIA uh, operative uh, and the State Department's Office of Counterterrorism and provided training to the US military special operations community for 24 years. So he's no newcomer um, to intelligence circles. So let's have a look at what he believes is going on. And by the way, he, he complimented Andrei Martinov on his uh, summary of events. So, so there is a collation between the two. Um, so basically what he's pointing out, first of all, is that the Wagner Group was established by Russian intelligence. It's funded and still is funded by the Russian government. Prigozhin has been shooting his mouth off for a few months with no recriminations from the Kremlin. The coup was launched because Russia allegedly attacked Wagner uh, camp, as we said, the video shows no bodies. And Prigozhin himself now backs away from this story and claims that the main reason that they carried out this mutiny was because uh, basically Wagner were about to be uh, incorporated into Russian military and so they would lose their independence. So that's his current story for the reason behind this, this coup. The Russian government effectively waited 12 hours before sending police or military to the Wagner HQ in St. Petersburg. That's a pretty long time if this is a serious threat to the nation. Prigozhin reportedly ordered a column of Wagner troops to go from Rostov-on-Don to Moscow to dethrone Shoigu and maybe General Gerasimov. Uh, Ger um, but let's have a look at the map showing exactly what that would actually entail. So even in a normal car, it's more than 13 hours from Rostov to Moscow. And yet the claims were that the column of, of Wagner, uh, I presume armored vehicles, etc., had arrived to within 120 kilometers of Moscow, which is virtually impossible they had no air support. So presumably, if this was a genuine threat to the Kremlin, the Russian Air Force, the Russian forces, the Russian military, particularly if it was true that the, the Wagner troops had brought down the number of helicopters and planes claimed by Western media or the Kiev independent, and which I would currently speculate is completely untrue. 
um, they would have attacked the column before it even arrived anywhere near that close to Moscow. So then Johnson goes on to say the coup was orchestrated to allow uh, movement of Russian reinforcements to areas north and west of Voronezh, while NATO believed mobilization was to suppress an insurrection by Prigozhin. Well, that makes sense. The narrative of Prigozhin betrayal began in 2022, when allegedly Western intelligence reached out to him, and he informed Russian intelligence of the contacts. The decision was then taken to exploit the disgruntled patriot narrative, even allowing Prigozhin to launch verbal attacks on Shoigu and Gerasimov. The Jack Tetsera uh, Discord leaks Prigozhin even allegedly passed intel on the locations of Russian troops to his intel handler in the West. And again, this is where the crossover between Martyanov and Johnson comes. Martyanov mentions the unimportant little island that still thinks it's important, and we all know that he means the UK. Um, Johnson then continues. Yeah, sorry. There we go. No worry. So basically his conclusion, um, and everyone can go and read his, his actual um, article, that it was stage managed by the Kremlin. They knew what NATO was trying to foment inside Russia. And what it enabled them to do is to move the troops closer to the border and then disperse them, which means Russia found a way to reinforce troops on a new potential axis of attack that will effectively create a nightmare for NATO planners. I would also say what it did do was to expose those who might support a NATO agenda inside Russia and those that would be sympathetic um, to any kind of regime change or coup, coup d'etat uh, inside Russia. So it exposed the potential uh, opposition or even the enemies of the state within Russia, within all the institutions. And it enabled Russia um, to, to reinforce their front lines um, and destroy any kind of uh, counterattack by Ukraine. Um, so, Vanessa, uh, w something we've got to stress here is this is some analysis mm -hmm. of the events. Yeah. Um, but uh, at this point, really, nobody knows exactly what has gone on. No, nobody knows what has gone on. Um, but when you start to, to look at the logical, rational explanations for what's gone on, it starts to narrow down to this. The fact that Martyanov, let's say, gave credibility to the idea of the coup. Now, is he doing that because that supports the, the kind of the Kremlin narrative, right, to, to deceive NATO, right? And, and we have to remember that Russia has a history of outwitting the MI6. When it, when it came into Syria in 2015, when you read um, uh, the, the book of Tim Ripley, for example, Operation Aleppo, it's very clear that American and British intelligence agencies really had no idea, and the military had no idea that Russia was planning to intervene at Syria in September 2015. Um, so I think all we're doing at the moment is sort of untangling the, the official narratives, looking at um, the, the, the narratives that are below the radar. And also, let's look at what Western media did almost immediately, almost as if this was prepared earlier. And of course, we have a history of that from Western media. So let's have a look at a few of the headlines. Did Putin bribe coup leader to quit Russia? Um, Wagner mutineers turn back after striking deal with Putin. Rebel chief halts tank advance on Moscow to stop bloodshed. And this is another point. Prigozhin himself stated that he wanted to prevent bloodshed. So if he wanted to prevent bloodshed, does that mean there was no prior bloodshed? In other words, they didn't bring down um, those Russian planes and helicopters as claimed by Western media. So uh, Russian rebellion, Putin at the brink, Putin pushed to the brink. And I think my favorite or probably the most sort of criminally insane comes from the Atlantic and Applebaum, who was also equally unpleasant and, and criminally uh, disinforming on Syria. Russia slides into civil war. And I'm not laughing at the fact that Russia might slide into a civil war. That would be awful and have 
terrible uh, repercussions for the world, but it's it's insane, this headline. Um, and then somebody put out a sort of a spoof Wikipedia, um, which is uh, Russian Civil War of 2023. But in reality, if you go to the actual real uh, Wikipedia page, it's not that far off. It's uh, Wagner Rebellion 2023. So all of these um, agencies that are aligned with NATO foreign policy jumped immediately to the conclusion that this was effectively a coup d'etat against um, Russia. And of course, they were sorely disappointed. Yes, and indeed, if we just put that uh, that Wikipedia thing back on again for one second, mm. uh, the the discussion thread with the people that uh, created that spoof uh, Wikipedia page there was a big long discussion underneath uh, mm-hmm. about about it, and and in that they they even commented on the Wikipedia the official Wikipedia page about the the uh, uh, Russian about, about the Wagner coup, uh, saying well actually. That Wikipedia page is almost identical to this spoof in terms of its ridiculousness. <laughs> exactly. So, so, and then there was one other quote that I just wanted to highlight, and this came from the uh, from the Guardian, and perhaps it gives a little bit of uh, uh, a bit of weight to to the suggestion that this uh, coup was this coup attempt was understood by the Russians, or there was uh, some agreement between them mm. and Prigozhin over this, because the quote from them was um, at first. Some observers wondered if Prigozhin had secretly coordinated this uprising with the Kremlin. This conspiratorial version turned out to be wrong. <laughs> so if that conspiratorial version has turned out to be wrong, according to The Guardian, uh, maybe we need to be giving it uh, some serious consideration. Uh, but anyway, well, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, as soon as they claim that something's a conspiracy, I tend to think we're, we're over target, basically. <laughs> Yes. Now we have a little bit of video from St. Petersburg that you just wanted to uh, to highlight. We're just going to play a few seconds of it, but if, if you introduce it, then. Yeah. So, so basically, this was on the night of. Uh, this was before Prigozhin had uh, taken the, the the deal and and headed off to Belarus, right? So this is in St. Petersburg, and this was the Scarlet Sales open air event in St. Petersburg for high school graduates. Something like sixty five thousand sixteen to seventeen year olds came out to celebrate, including um, several hundred that had come to Russia for safety uh, from Donbass. And there were absolutely no police incidents, you'll be glad to know, Mike. Okay. Живущих в соседнем дворе, а может она начинается с той песни, что пела нам мать, с того, что в любых испытаниях. Okay, so so that gives a, an impression of that. Uh, now, look. Uh, in the meantime, perhaps something else that might give a little bit of weight, and I'd say that with a fairly uh, big perhaps on it, uh, that that uh, the Russians were prepared prepared for what Prigozhin finally did, was actually what's been going on in Syria in the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is actually where, for me, I start to see confirmation of what we've just been talking about. Um, because just before the Prigozhin uh, so-called mutiny, the Republican Guard, a division of the Syrian Arab army, uh, moved or mobilized heavy artillery, uh, heavy machinery to the north of Syria. So this was just before the Prigozhin, a few days before Prigozhin um, kicked off. And um, in obvious preparation for a campaign against the Northwest, the terrorists backed by the West and Turkey in the Northwest, um, effectively Idlib, uh, to the North, which is Turkey and the US, and to the Northeast, which of course is the US and the Kurds, occupying uh, Syrian oil and agricultural resources. And then um, the terrorists started to, particularly in the northwest, close to Latakia on the coast and uh, from Idlib, started to target civilian areas in Latakia. They actually targeted Kandahar, which was the birthplace of Hafiz al-Assad, killing a young uh, agricultural engineer, Mohammed Sultana, and injuring his brother. 
They attacked various towns and villages in northern Hamar, bordering southern Idlib. Uh, and then when Prigozhin, uh, the entire sort of event kicked off, we suddenly saw um, a massive increase in Russian bombing and Syrian Arab army artillery offensive against terrorist positions, including um, drone factories, ammunition stores, headquarters of terrorist militants. Um, they were hitting multiple targets. To give you an idea, this morning alone, between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., Russia conducted more than 35 sorties, 35 bombings. That's unheard of in the entire conflict in Syria. Um, and they've attacked basically Al-Zawiya mountain, which is on the southern Idlib border with the Syrian Arab army uh, held territory in northern Hamar. Uh, they attacked uh, West Idlib multiple times. They attacked Jishra al-Shugur, Kabane Hills. So this has been, and that's with the support of Syrian Arab army artillery, so they have taken a pounding, and it's a pounding that I don't think anyone uh, in Idlib, none of the terrorist groups were prepared for. As you can see, this is a young uh, Al-Qaeda or HTS activist talking about the bombing. This is to basically the west of Idlib. Um, of course, he's not going to mention that these are terrorist headquarters, terrorist, um, particularly drone manufacturing factories. Turkey has been enabling particularly uh, Jolani and HTS or Al-Qaeda um, to manufacture fairly sophisticated drones that have been carrying out attacks against Syrian Arab army positions and even against Russian military positions fairly recently. That's not something that is very well known. Um, and so therefore, for me, um, what this means is that Russia took advantage of uh, the Prigozhin distraction to conduct a very extensive, intensive, uh, air campaign against the terrorist uh, positions, and even to the point where there was a, a violation of the deconfliction zone by U.S. Air Force uh, this morning. And also, Mike, I want to add here that General Milley and Jake Sullivan have both cancelled their uh, intended trips. Now, General Milley was intending to go to uh, Jordan and Israel, and I would speculate there was he going to go there on the basis that he thought the terrorists would have started their campaign against the Syrian Arab army and he was going to Jordan and Israel to garner support? And then he cancelled because the Prigozhin plot fell apart. Again, that's speculation, but it's worthy speculation. And Jake Sullivan uh, cancelled his trip to Denmark. So for me, that, that would sort of suggest that things are not going to plan for them. Yes. Okay, thank you for that. And I just want to end this segment very quickly. Now, this is Il Russo again, uh, commenting on the Chinese assessment of the events of the last mm -hmm. few days. Uh, the Chinese saying uh, that the suppression of the rebellion in such a short period of time has effectively strengthened the authority of the Putin administration. And I wanted to contrast that with what Tobias Elwood was pushing out this morning. Uh, this is his tweet. Um, he's saying that the Wagner Group has been muted, uh, Prigozhin has been exiled, uh, that the mutiny has been diffused, but that Putin has been irrever irreversibly weakened. Um, and so uh, there's a, a definite disparity between uh, what uh, Tobias Elwood thinks and what the Chinese are saying. And I leave it up to our audience to decide who might be more accurate in their assessment. But now let me uh, welcome Mark Anderson to the program. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, you wanted to say a little bit more about the uh, Ukraine Recovery Conference that we were talking about on last uh, Wednesday's program. Yes, I of course, I initially brought it up uh, this past Monday, a week ago. Uh, good day, Vanessa, and to you, Mike. Um, yeah, just to keep building on it and keep reporting on it, there's a lot to unpack, as you know, Mike. And um, looking at this first slide, this is one slide I showed last week where I talked about how the global cities movement and the smart cities movement, Ukrainian cities are being plugged into that. And the German Marshall Fund of the United States based in Washington, DC is working with the ubiquitous Chicago Council on Global Affairs in the Global Cities Program. 
and they're going for the uh, Marshall Plan with a green tint to it, you might say, for all of Ukraine. Now, this uh, next slide here from Chatham House is actually from August of 2018. And note, note the language, rebuilding Ukraine, an assessment of EU assistance. The challenge of transforming U Ukrainian institutions requires a smarter, more flexible, and more differentiated approach to using EU assistance for individual projects. Again, emphasizing just how long Ukraine has been in the globalist crosshairs for total re-engineering of the, of the society. Uh, the summary of that 2018 item from Chatham House, Ukraine opted for political association and economic integration with the EU when it signed an association agreement back in 2014, and we know what happened in February of that year. The agreement is unprecedented in that the country has committed to reforms back then without having the prospect of EU membership. However, the scale of Ukraine's reform commitments is not matched by its capacity to implement them. That's at that time. The EU's assistance from 1992 to Ukraine all the way to 2013 helped to raise awareness of European rules and standards in Ukraine, but had a negligible impact on the functioning of state institutions. Since that bellwether year 2014, the EU has stepped up its assistance, of course it has, and has in effect supported the rebuilding of Ukrainian state institutions. So the EU is really in the driver's seat, certainly not the average Ukrainian citizen. Now this is uh, the 20th of June, this is just this past week, right before the Ukraine, Ukraine Recovery Conference, which was uh, the 21st and 22nd of June. So here's Chatham House again, five years later, shaping the new Ukraine. I mentioned this only briefly last week, delivering resilient recovery, plenty of globalese words there. And then moving on from there, uh, we have what it says here. There's some detail compared to what I said last week. Looking at another screen here, the conference's goal is to find ways to shape a better than ever fully reconstructed Ukraine. That's the Chatham House Conference. Once peace is achieved, but starting right now, Ukraine's recovery requires enormous human and financial resources and will impact every sphere of public life. I made that quote last week. This event convenes Ukrainian and other international participants representing government, civil society, cities, philanthropic organizations, private foundations, and the private sector, which weighs very heavily in this, in this whole thing. It offers new insights and approaches to recovery and discusses specific mechanisms to rebuild Ukraine sustainably, inclusively, and transparently. There's more buzzwords. The event is held in English, et cetera. It's sponsored by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office of the UK government. Uh, that's the Chatham House event and is in conjunction with the Ukraine Recovery Conference 2023, which is pretty much purely the, the UK government in conjunction with other governments and the private sector. The conference also presents a photo exhibition, Mission Possible, Rebuilding Ukraine Now, the project was curated by ISAR and USAID. USAID is involved in that. Of course, they're notorious, and I think Vanessa can back this up for being uh, for mingling with the CIA, and, and in some ways are kind of one and the same. But anyway, this is this next lady who spoke the 20th of June at Chatham House as a introduction for the next couple of days after that for the U Ukraine Recovery Conference is Danae. Dolakia, Special Envoy, Ukraine Recovery Conference. So she stopped at Chatham House before that recovery conference. And here's a little bit, as I understand it, of what she had to say. The timing of this event could obviously not be better with the big event coming tomorrow. Um, we're scooping up all of the insights, all of the research, all of the intellect present today in this room and ensuring that it's kept for prosperity on the URC website, that we all are able to look at uh, this rich data uh, and work with it and ensure that indeed the Ukraine Recovery Conference is not two days. It's not a week of all sorts of very, very intense, wonderful events. But what it is, is a receptacle of our collective knowledge. And it's a framework for delivery in the long term. Because we're not going to deliver this in a week. We're not going to deliver this 
in a few days. We have to build a plan and we have to ensure that we deliver that plan. And that's really what the conference is all about. Our focus is, of course, ensuring that we can bring the private sector very fully to the table as a full participant in this endeavour, alongside governments, alongside international finance institutions, alongside development finance institutions, alongside civil society. But whilst business and private sector is the focus, the role of civil society, of course, is absolutely vital. I just want to reinforce the point at this point, uh, Mark, that this is a representative of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office speaking there uh, and uh, absolutely making it clear effectively what government policy is. We're talking about the fusion of everything into one uh, foreign policy agency, effectively, including the government, uh, but also civil society and private sector. And I think at that point we've lost Mark. Well, that's <laughs> that's uh, very disappointing. Okay, well, okay, we're not going to. We'll we'll see if Mark can rejoin us again in a second. Uh, we're going to have to move on then. So we'll just uh, quickly run through a couple of things here, and uh, we'll say if you uh, like what the UK column do, does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options for you to help us out there, and that'd be very much appreciated very much needed as well. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, including ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, we'll come back to Mark uh, in, in a little minute if, if we uh, get the chance. Uh, sorry, Mark, are you back? Yes, I don't know what happened. Something went very haywire. Apologies. Um, okay, well, look, uh, Mark, what we'll do is we'll come back to this uh, a little bit uh, later if we if we can. Just uh, hold, hold fire there for a second. Now, uh, let's uh, move on. Now, on, uh, we, of course, did not do a news program on Wednesday, and that was because uh, we were uh, at uh, John and Diane's wedding, uh, and uh, that was an absolutely fantastic event. I want to say thank you very much to them for inviting us to take part. Alex uh, served as best man. David... Uh, walked the bride down the aisle, escorted the bride down the aisle. Uh, it was an amazing day and uh, well done to them. I hope they have a fantastic life together. They're away on their honeymoon uh, and uh, no doubt we'll have more to say about that in extra. Uh, on Saturday then, uh, we were at uh, an event, a noted NATO event uh, in uh, just outside Holyrood. We're going to have more to say that. Probably Brian will have more on, on that on Wednesday's extra as well with uh, a lot of photographs and so on. Uh, as you can see, I was successfully getting sunburnt there and uh, the wonderful Di, who you've seen on uh, UK Column News a few times, uh, decided the best way that she could protect me from that was to hide me under a pink umbrella. Uh, I'll leave uh, our audience to make comments uh, in the chat box. Uh, but I just wanted to say thank you to Sue for these comments. She said many thanks to all who organized the Rally for Peace and Freedom at Hollywood on Saturday, 24th of June. It was wonderful to see Brian, Mike, and David all attend. As ever, your talk, Brian, really inspired and helped motivate us and keep questioning the main narrative. David, your talk also inspired many to move forward in a movement of peace and understanding. Thank you to all. And as ever, keep up the great work that you all do on UK Column. So thank you very much for those comments, Sue. Uh, and uh, tomorrow, 1 p.m., if you want to uh, join us uh, on the live stream, uh, David Scott is speaking to Simon Elmer. Uh, the Road to Fascism, Fascism Part 2, Close to the Abyss. Uh, that's at 1pm tomorrow on uh, ukcolumn.org slash live as usual. Um, and then finally, I want to highlight this uh, because apparently uh, a certain person, Vanessa, is joining the COVID inquiry. Yes, apparently. I, I saw, a, I think it was a tweet or a Facebook post from Robert Stewart again that Matt Hancock is going to be there. So anybody that wants to go and ask questions and speak to Matt Hancock, um, please go along. So that's Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, the 27th of June, 9.30 to 1.30 at Dorland House. Uh, that's in Westbourne Terrace, London W2. So uh, get along to that if you possibly can. Um, OK, uh, now we want to move on to uh, the issue of censorship uh, and so on. And the opening question, Vanessa, is... Uh, are we all terrorists now? <laughs> well, 
Well, it's definitely looking that way. Um, I mean, this is up at my Substack. if people want to go and have a look at more detail. Um, I talk about my detention. Oh, gosh, when was it now? Uh, November 2021. There have been so many. Um, and I happened to be communicating with uh, John Laughlin uh, the other day, and he told me that last year in October, he was also um, detained. John Laughlin, author, historian, director of the FVD, the Forum for Democracy, the largest political party in the Netherlands with 60,000 members, um, was stopped as he entered the UK. He is a British citizen. Um, he was stopped as he came in uh, last October. Um, and as he says in the article that he wrote on his detention, although he was told it was not a detention and therefore he didn't have the right to have access to a lawyer at the time, the act is supposedly designed, the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, Section 3, to allow the police to detain hostile actors who are traveling to the country to plan prepare or carry out their hostile acts, according to the leaflet the officers gave me and me. Um, but the act itself says an examining officer may exercise the powers under this paragraph, whether or not there are grounds for suspecting that a person is or has been engaged in hostile activity. So an act ostensibly designed to allow hostile actors to be stopped, in fact, applies indiscriminately to everyone, according to its own explicit terms. And he then says, it is certainly surprising that the powers were wielded, in my case, against a British national. Nationals should not normally be questioned in this way about their reasons for entering the territory of their own country. Absolutely correct. We're not at war with Russia, as we've said on, on numerous occasions. Um, he then also says, ever since the EU announced its global human rights sanctions regime in December 2020, I have also pointed out that the EU has given itself the power to punish individuals by executive order. This is a very dangerous development. Individuals are punished under this regime without any legal procedure, no trial, and without any means of defending themselves, so much for human rights. And I have warned for two years now that citizens of Western states would themselves be the target of these sanctions, and this duly happened in July when a British blogger, Graham Phillips, in the Donbass was sanctioned by the United Kingdom, which has the same system now as the EU and the US. And then if we move on quickly, Mike, to the incredible ruling, because uh, as far as I understand, John Laughlin appealed for his computer to be returned to him. It was kept um, by the, the anti-terrorist squad. Um, the ruling by Judge Lord Menzies, the reason which has been advanced for the retention of this material is not that Mr. Laughlin has been engaged in interference activity directed by or otherwise linked to the Russian state, and this is where it gets incredible. It is that he may be linked to individuals who may have been so engaged. So we are now fully in Patriot Act territory. Uh, indeed. Um, yeah, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Incredible. No, I mean, just quite incredible. So basically, if, if you're linked to individuals who may have been so engaged, you can be picked up by the anti-terrorist squad in the UK. So in other words, you can be picked up at any time as a terrorist, basically. And of course, this is designed to intimidate people who might want to be journalists. But what about intimidating people uh, that uh, might want to speak to journalists? Uh, well, let's bring this on screen. Now, this is from uh, September 2022. This is the European Media Freedom Act. Uh, this is the European Commission's press release on it. And the headline here is European Media Freedom Act. Commission proposes rules to protect media pluralism and independence in the EU. So think about that. They produced a piece of legislation, which most people in the general public would think this is good. This is about protecting the media. It's all fantastic, keeps the media independent and so on. But many people have been commenting on this uh, since it was announced. And this is uh, Investigate Europe. Uh, Secrets of the Council is their sort of tagline for it. EU governments plan blank check to spy on journalists. Uh, because, Vanessa, this is about the EU wanting to allow state surveillance of journalists and their interlocutors, as they say in this article, including the use of spyware if security authorities mm. deem it necessary. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So so the confidentiality of journalistic sources goes out of the window, basically. 
Um, and as it says here, draft EU plans uh, to allow spying on journalists are dangerous, warn critics. Um, the move to allow spyware to be placed on reporters' phones would have a chilling effect, say media experts. Well, yes, of course it would. And of course, that's what the state actually wants to chill any dissident journalists or sources. Um, on Wednesday, the European Council, which represents the governments of EU member states, published a draft of the European Media Freedom Act that would allow spyware to be placed on journalists' phones if a national government thought it necessary. Well, as we're already in danger of being deemed terrorists, if we have any remote connection to somebody who might also be deemed a terrorist or engaged in, etc., etc. And of course, one year ago, Pegasus spyware was found on journalists' phones. French intelligence confirms, um, if you just move on quickly, because it says French intelligence have confirmed that Pegasus spyware has been found on the phones of three journalists, including a senior member of staff at the country's international TV station, France 24. Um, Forbidden Stories, Paris-based non-profit media organization and Amnesty International had access to a leaked list of 50,000 numbers that it is believed have been identified as those of people of interest by clients of Israeli firm NSO Group since 2016 and shared access with their media partners. So this is something that has to a degree been already going on. But of course, what the EU draft legislation um, threatens is that it becomes the norm to spy on journalists and on journalist sources. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and just to end off this section uh, on censorship, as it were, let's bring uh, Thierry Breton on screen. He's the EU Commissioner for Internal Markets because he's basically issued a threat against Twitter at the moment. Now, everybody knows that Twitter has effectively lifted uh, its previous censorship regime. Uh, and But Breton uh, being quite threatening. So he's now saying that if the, if the technology to moderate dangerous content, as he describes it as dangerous content, is not ready, uh, they need to have enough resources to match the gap. So if they're not prepared uh, to install uh, uh, mechanisms that, that prevent certain types of content being uploaded to Twitter in the first place, then he's saying they absolutely need to put people and human beings in place to, to uh, match what that uh, software would do. Um, I spoke on this specific topic with Elon Musk. Breton said, uh, he said, I'm not here to tell the company what they have to do. I'm the regulator and have to tell them what is the law. Uh, our new rules will protect users online, guarantee freedom of expression, and open up new opportunities for companies. So again, we see these uh, forked tongue words here where, uh, you know, in the name of keeping people safe uh, online, uh, guaranteeing freedom of expression, we're gonna shut down freedom of expression and uh, prevent certain people from saying anything. Well, that's uh, the position of, of uh, Thierry Breton, uh, Breton and, uh, well, what can we say? <laughs> the dictatorship uh, rolls on apace, and that's absolutely clear. Now, Mark, uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I want to come back to your uh, to the rest of your report on, uh, on the Ukrainian uh, recovery conference in a second, but have you got any thoughts on this uh, censorship story we've just discussed? Yeah, they largely match yours, Mike. I'll kind of stand on your shoulders here. Uh, you know, when they talk about uh, freedom for the press and all that, and then at the same time, they want to put, uh, you know, surveillance um, gadgetry on people's phones. Uh, it's Orwellian to the core. I mean, obviously, it's all to protect the same old media narrative that we've had forever. And they can't let that narrative go, because if they don't do these measures and they lose the narrative, they lose it all. So they're trying to sandbag this uh, so they don't get into something that they cannot retrieve, that they cannot reverse. That's why they're going so drastic and so Orwellian, in my estimation. Yes, indeed. Now let's come back to the uh, Ukrainian uh, recovery conference, uh, the coverage that you were talking about. So we had just seen the video with uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office representative um, talking about uh, the fact that the efforts to merge government, civil society, private sector together in order to effectively re-engineer Ukraine, what Ukraine is. But that brings us on to the conference itself uh, that we were discussing on last Wednesday's program. Yeah, you describe it well, Mike. Uh, this is private governance, Bilderberg-style governance in a sense, at its finest. 
uh, where everything comes together and coalesces into a new uh, collective whole. And yes, the Ukraine Recovery Conference, we're showing the slide here, happened 21 and 22 of June, just just wound up in UK, um, in London. The Chatham House was right before that on the 20th, as we mentioned. And this is just, this next slide is just a look at um, a recent conference and kind of how part of the gathering looks. Looks kind of like an IMF World Bank gathering, which I covered once in 2011. But moving on from there, um, we have uh, a little bit more about what it's about. Uh, some of this is rather rudimentary. Uh, unity demonstrating the continued strength and breadth of the international support for Ukraine. Diversity, more globalist buzzwords. Uh, bringing together a diverse range of actors to work together on Ukraine's recovery, making impactful coalitions of international partners. That kind of goes into what you were saying, making impactful coalitions of international partners, this collectiveness. Uh, private sector and civil society working together with the government of Ukraine. This is the new governance. Uh, delivery display how support and expertise from the international community, private sector and civil society, can help Ukraine, here we go, build back better, greener, and as a more resilient, prosperous European nation, balancing what can be done now and what needs to be done in the longer term. Everything's being primed, of course, for um, full EU membership. Now, the first day, there's much more that could be said in the weeks ahead as, as I continue reporting on this. There's a lot to flesh out, but the first day, the plenary session, it set the scene for the conference. It, it set out the role of the private sector to mobilize investment at the scale needed to support Ukraine to build back better. It'll focus on the role of governments and international financial institutions as the enablers of investment and promote the Ukraine Recovery Conference as the vehicle for Ukraine to secure support for its immediate recovery needs. Prime Minister Sunak and President Zelensky of Ukraine opened the uh, event by welcoming governments, international financiers, businesses, and civil society to London. After nearly 18 months of Ukraine living under a full-scale Russian bombardment, the Ukraine Recovery Conference is a, is, the, is a key moment for the global community to come together to show the strength of support and unity for Ukraine's recovery effort. And again, this, this uh, heightened sense of this new kind of governance now, uh, this next slide, just kind of whizzing through this, it just indicates that Dmitry Kuliba, Dmitry Kuliba, rather, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, uh, was in fact at Bilderberg this past May in Lisbon, Portugal. And so that's just something to keep in mind. It's a, it's a good backdrop item because it helps you understand the motivation and the power going on here. And going on from there, uh, this is just a quick picture of Mr. Kaliba, he's shown to the right there. To the left is, of course, James Cleverly, the Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Affairs for the UK. Uh, Cleverly introduced um, Rishi Sunak. Uh, Mr. Kaliba didn't seem to speak. He kind of just hung around and decided to look pretty, I guess, in his mind. But now we have some more comments of the Prime Minister, which I think will uh, kind of um, uh, supplement what you uh, uh, recently also showed on UK Column. Now, before this terrible war, Ukraine's economy was becoming a huge investment opportunity. A top five exporter of iron and ore and steel, a leader in energy, pushing forward renewables, hydrogen and electric vehicles, and a startup nation, which helped spark names like PayPal, WhatsApp and Revolut, with a thriving tech sector, which actually had a record year in 2022. In fact, the war has only proved how much Ukraine has to offer. They were networking mobile phones so that people across Ukraine could download an app which would allow their phone to pick up the sound of the Shahed drones and feed back the location so that Ukrainian air defense could track them and shoot them down. During the winter, Russia tried to destroy Ukraine's energy grid. By February, over 40% of power generation was down. But now, because of that incredible ingenuity and defiance, Ukraine has got the grid back online, and they're even able to start exporting electricity back to Europe. 
As we've seen in Bakhmut and Mariupol, what Russia cannot take, it will seek to destroy. They want to do the same to Ukraine's economy. Right, Mark, I just want to, I just want to get uh, a, a very, very quick comment on that because uh, Vanessa had her head in her hands while that was playing. <laughs> so I just, very, Vanessa, very briefly, give oh, us some thoughts. God, I've come over all hot. I mean, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, this reminds me of, do you remember Harlow Systems, the whole, the, the systems that the White Helmets generated in Edleb that will spot every single Russian warplane and bomb and missile and so on and so forth. And, and then this idea of Russia takes what it wants and destroys the rest. Come to Syria, Rishi. You're welcome. Come and see what you've taken and then destroyed when you couldn't keep it. I mean, yeah. I, I, enough already, really enough. Yes, okay. <laughs> that, that, that's a fair comment, Mark. It, it is. What he said about the phone app and the drones is just literally not to be believed. Uh, there is no basis to believe that at all. And the comments about the strength of Ukraine's economy might have some truth to them, but that would take a lot of verification. It's, it certainly sounds a lot rosier than, it, than the realities of Ukraine's economy, in my estimation. But to be fair, I'd like to look some of those stats up. But the, the drone comment uh, is, I don't even know what to say. It, it, it defies <laughs> uh, counter comment. <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you. Right, well, look, let's just uh, finish then on a little bit of uh, economic news. And you wanted to comment on the inflation situation. Yeah, it seems that the fight against inflation is now going on a more worldwide scale. So much of it that we hear is on a U.S. basis. What is the Fed going to do? Oh, Jerome Powell, uh, he's had another epiphany, et cetera. And uh, the, the, sub, the sub story is the Fed was going to raise rates again for the umpteenth time and decided just for now they're not going to do it. And so here's the headline. The world's, the world's fight against inflation is about to get more serious and more painful. The part they never tell you is that the banksters are fighting the very inflation that they create, as David Scott and I talk about from somewhat different some from somewhat different perspectives regularly on this show. Uh, reading a little bit of this CNN story, that was a CNN headline. Here's the story: Central bankers across the globe are delivering a message. Uh, they want to win the fight against inflation, and, and here's from from your side of the pond. If we don't raise rates now, and this sounds just like Jerome Powell, high inflation can stay with us longer for longer. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said after raising interest rates unexpectedly by half a percentage point there in the UK on Thursday, even though inflation is slowing in many countries, they say, after more than a year of interest rate hikes, it remains above the 2% level that many central banks are targeting. The 2% level is sort of the sacrosanct uh, figure that they always use. Um, much could be said here. <clears throat> I'll just read a small part of this, a little small print. My other monitor went down. Central bankers have a very delicate balancing act. For a while, it seemed as though they could raise rates without significantly hurting their economies. But now th that time is catch. This is all catching up with them, in other words. And with inflation higher than they'd like it to be, the risk of doing too much to get inflation down is on par with, with, uh, uh, with not doing enough. So the, the part they're not telling you is that raising interest rates itself is potentially and often actually inflationary. The, the one theory is that if they raise rates uh, and rates are, are prohibitively high, then people will take out fewer car loans. They won't get that mortgage and there'll be less spending in the borrowing sense and that will cool inflation. But lines of credit for manufacturing, lines of credit for all sorts of businesses have to be maintained for those businesses to stay in business, and they will borrow at higher rates. And um, people have variable rate mortgages in the United States. They're not all fixed rates. And, and higher credit card premiums, higher credit card interest rates are almost inevitable. And these costs from the business sector will be passed on to the end consumer in what's called cost push inflation. The other kind of inflation that David talks about uh, when you print too much currency versus the inventories, that's uh, demand pull inflation. There's two kinds of inflation. So the, the story behind the story is 
the banks act like inflation is this monster coming from a cave that they have no connection to when in fact they create it uh, by raising rates that are that are a cost to doing business that are pushed onto the end consumer or by printing too much money in some instances and then they say how are we going to fight this terrible scourge of inflation <clears throat> well the way to fight it is to get the central banks out of the business of creating money for nation states so money can be created interest-free and debt-free and is not born as debt. Ultimately, that's the answer. But again, they play this switcheroo, this uh, this uh, mind game, and tell you that they're trying to kill a dragon that they claim they have no connection to when, in fact, the, the dragon comes right out of their zoo. So that's just something that needs to be clarified um, at this point in time. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. And uh, with that, uh, we are out of time. So I'm going to say thank you very much to Vanessa and to Mark for joining us today. I think that has been very interesting uh, news. We're going to discuss more of these issues uh, on Extra in a couple of minutes. If you're a UK column member, please do join us for that. Uh, but uh, we will be back uh, on for UK column news on Wednesday at 1pm uh, as usual. And hopefully we'll see you there. But do join us for the interview at 1pm tomorrow at ukcolumn.org slash live as usual. Okay, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.